Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we're discussing Martin Scorsese's Beck's picture-winning Boston mob epic, The Departed, which stars Leonardo DiCaprio as William Costigan, an undercover cop infiltrating the Irish mob, Jack Nicholson as mob boss Frank Costello, and Matt Damon as Costello's protege, Colin Sullivan, who also happens to be a member of the state police force. So that's all a bit convoluted. We will do our best to keep everything straight as we discuss this film. I mean, it's a switcheroo where one person is an undercover criminal and the other one is an undercover cop, and it is really, really good. I mean, this is a film which is famously acclaimed, and it's also, I feel like it's under the list of one of those things that people complain about their boyfriends recommending to them, which is an unfortunate list, right? Because it's like, there's a lot of, like, man media out there that is recommended to people by boyfriends, and... Without any further info, it's impossible to tell which one of those items of media is good or not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, The Departed. Really, really enjoyed this film. Wonderful performances from everyone. Very intense, very dramatic, very emotional, very Catholic. And it was interesting to then go back and watch Infernal Affairs, the movie it's based on. Yes, I had never seen that before and I watched it last night. So that was a really interesting element of context that I didn't have that we'll talk about. Uh, You just watched The Departed for the first time. I have seen this many times. Uh, I am from the Boston area, as many listeners will know, and this was an unprecedentedly enormous (laughs) phenomenon in 2006. I actually hadn't seen this in a long time when I rewatched it a couple weeks ago, but I was in high school when it came out, and I cannot describe to you how big of a deal it was. Like, I used to watch the morning news when I was like making breakfast before I went to school because it was a different time and that was what you did. You had the TV on. And when they were shooting this in Boston, the morning news every morning would be like, they're at this warehouse and didn't have footage of anyone. (laughs) It was like a still image of a warehouse, but they were like, they're there. Because it was. I mean, I would be overjoyed to have those updates from when Batman was filming in Glasgow, but instead I had to hear it third hand through the grapevine. So, you know. I mean, (laughs) it was incredibly exciting. And I barely had any idea who Martin Scorsese was. Like, I was 15 or something when they were shooting this, maybe 14. But it was just like Leonardo DiCaprio is in town. Oh my God. Like, this just huge, huge, huge deal. So then by the time it came out, Everyone was incredibly excited. By the time, you know, we're recording this now, 14 years later, Boston has become a real hotspot for making movies. There are tax credits there now, which there weren't at the time. But when this movie was made in 2006, this just didn't happen. Like, there had been movies made in Boston, the Boston area before, of course. It wasn't like this was the first. But Will Hunting is the sort of big precedent. Obviously a very different kind of movie, but this just it just wasn't a thing and now there have been many other crime movies made after this none of which are particularly great this was really unprecedented and so everyone in that part of the country was just like oh my god this is like the best movie to the point where like the songs on the soundtrack became like big songs that everyone in my high school is listening to like the soundtrack to this movie is freaking awesome this is like this is like a full-on playlist movie oh big time big time Um, Which I also was not prepared for. Yeah. Like, there's some real bangers in there. (laughs) Yeah. And so, like, I saw it multiple times as a teenager. I loved it, but also found it a little bit inaccessible. It is very masculine. And I was really fascinated rewatching it as an adult because I have this really fond spot for it because of those associations, but it definitely gets talked about in the context of, like, it's so weird that that's the movie Scorsese won his Oscar for, which obviously on one level is true. Like, it's he didn't win it for Taxi Driver or Raging Bull, he won it for this other movie. But I watched it again, and I was like, oh, this is fucking awesome. Like, this it's a really good rules. movie. Because, like, obviously it's like Taxi Driver is less of a sort of, it's not a genre movie. Like, right, this is one of Scorsese's, like, straight up and down mob films. And there are, God knows many mob films out there but this one's very good you know there's every single character in the massive ensemble cast has like an interesting role and you've got killer actors in the main leads the revolting mark Wahlberg actually played a good role in this which was disgusting for me to even consider but um he he did a good job i guess sometimes the stopped clock can be right and like 
it's, you know, it's just like really emotionally engaging. What it does so well is it is incredibly fun to watch, like as a mob movie, right? Like it's really, really fast. It's just entertaining. But as you say, all the characters are really, really fleshed out and nuanced. Like even the supporting characters who don't have as much emotional context are just very specific and fun. Like Alec Baldwin plays the boss at the state police and he's just like, he just feels like a real guy. He's very entertaining. And it actually has themes also without sort of being weighty or pretentious. So it wraps all that stuff up in a very satisfying package because it's about something in a real way while also just being incredibly entertaining, which we often talk about as being a particularly hard thing to pull off. But this does that while also feeling definitely like a work of art, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think when we were discussing 1917 last year, I think like one of us brought up kind of the fact that war movies as a genre are like often kind of the only way that some men can allow themselves to get really engaged emotionally with a piece of art. So it's like war movies and mob movies, which are often like really histrionic, like lots of weeping and hugging and like really intensive emotions, but in a way that's very much kind of about male bonding. And in the case of mob movies, it's also about being trapped in a system that you can't escape. And that is like really explicitly what this movie is about and what like a lot of Scorsese's films are about and with a sort of very Catholic background and lots of guilt strewn in there which is very much what this film is about and it's also why a lot of mob movies by lesser directors are deeply hackneyed and cliched because they're following the same beats to try and elicit that emotional reaction and you're just are like oh Jesus Christ why are we having to watch like this bullshit again (laughs) and in the case of this film it's like first of all it's actually like a really interesting concept even though the entire concept is lifted very directly from Infernal Affairs but um the characters are very, very individual. And it's kind of like um, when we were discussing Matt Damon's filmography in our Talented Mr. Ripley episode, it's like this is like a, such a great point in his career before he started doing lots of like boring action films. And it's like the cusp of Leo and Matt Damon stopping, like it's the at the end of them doing like boy roles and moving into their sort of, you know, leading man kind of mid-30s sort of roles. Yes, which is the point at which they get boring. They're much more vulnerable. That was like the main difference, apart from sort of like the tonal differences we'll discuss later between this and Infernal Affairs, is like the two leads of Infernal Affairs feel a lot steadier because they were in their 30s, whereas this you've got like young Leo and young Matt and there's like a lot of sort of paternal stuff going on with Jack Nicholson's mob boss character and Martin Sheen's uh, police chief character who are like their mentors. Yes, it's very, very Shakespearean in a like Mm. explicitly textual way like they reference Shakespeare so as we said this is adapted from a film made in Hong Kong called Internal Affairs Infernal Affairs yes Infernal Affairs sorry they bring it to Boston and shifted the mob boss character so that he more closely resembled Whitey Bulger who is of course a legendary figure in Boston crime history one sort of odd bit of production history that I thought I would mention because it's just so wild to me is that Brad Pitt was originally supposed to play the Matt Damon character and I think drew out himself because he was like this is not going to work like I can't do this and stayed on as a producer so this is one of the first movies he produced but a that would have been like once upon a time in Hollywood this would have happened so much earlier if they had both been in that movie but one of the things that's kind of funny to me watching this is someone who is from outside Boston not Boston proper um People will be able to tell I do not have a Boston accent, but Damon and Wahlberg sound so much better (laughs) than anybody else in this movie because they are actually from Boston. And if neither of the two leads had actually been from Boston, it really would not have worked at all. So the idea of Brad Pitt playing that character, it's just like, no, no. So... That was the sort of background. William Monaghan wrote the screenplay. He has written nothing else that was good, uh, but won the Oscar for this, deservedly so, because the screenplay is fucking great. It is just like one memorable one-liner after another, which is also a big part of what makes the movie so fun, I think, is that the dialogue is just like delicious. Jack Nicholson has a lot of great one-liners, and Wahlberg in particular, like every single thing that comes out of his mouth is just like, oh, yes. This is so much fun. Just amazing dialogue in this film. And I hadn't actually looked 
at William Monaghan's like filmography. And wow, he's written some absolute stinkers. No. It's it's wild. Would you like to read a few of them so that our listeners have context? Kingdom of Heaven, which was a bad historical drama by Ridley Scott starring Orlando Bloom. Uh, Sin City 2, which is appalling as Sin City is also appalling. The Gambler starring Mark Wahlberg. No idea what that is. Edge of Darkness (laughs) starring Mel Gibson. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Uh, And he drafted a version of Jurassic World that wasn't made. And the idea of there being a version of Jurassic World that was less acceptable than the one that was made is terrifying to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. But God love him. I guess he he used up his one power-up on this really great film. Yes. And he is from Boston, I believe. And the movie is, as I have been alluding to, incredibly, incredibly specific to the place, which is the sort of best improvement from Infernal Affairs, I think, along with the psychological stuff. Watching this again, I was so taken with and impressed by the degree to which it just feels like it's in Boston on a very granular level. Um, It's specifically about the Irish American community in Boston And the church is just ubiquitous in this movie. Like, it's not like they're making big speeches about Catholicism or whatnot throughout, but it's just sort of threaded in, in an almost subtextual way throughout the film. Like, there are nuns in the background and people kind of making offhand comments about the church. And then also all of this class stuff, which felt very, very accurate to the area to me. So... The setup basically is that the Matt Damon character is from Southie, I believe, and the Jack Nicholson character, Frank Costello, who is the mob boss, sort of identifies him when he's a young boy as someone who has promise and he's going to mentor him and then eventually he gets him into the state police as a mole. And the Leonardo DiCaprio character is also from, has family in that area, but his immediate family has a more sort of bougie background and he went to a you know impressive prep school and did really well on the SATs and then for some reason has wound up going through the police academy and the people who run the undercover department in the state police sort of identify him as a great candidate to go undercover because he has these family connections and is clearly smart and they play on his sort of familial issues like why have you chosen this career you're so intelligent and so they wind up kind of going their separate ways and all of the stuff about those sort of class tensions and divisions are so present in that community in Boston and I thought the movie did a really great job of understanding them and illustrating them without I mean, they ex- they address them explicitly, but it's not like the movie is banging it over they your head constantly. You. It's like you can you can tell very much so, and also from just like this the setting of like the locations of where they're living and like as Matt Damon's character, who's like the criminal undercover as a cop, sort of like moves up in the world really fast and has this gorgeous apartment. Like it's a very obvious sort of comparison between the lives they lead, but it's very effective. Yes. And he buys like a huge apartment that literally overlooks the state house in Boston, which would be. And I was like, anyone who goes to his apartment would be like, where is the money coming from? <laughs> You're like a detective. <laughs> I mean, that part of the city is like the most expensive, as you would imagine. Like, it would be so outrageously costly to live there. And the real estate agent who sells him the apartment is like, uh, do you have children? Like a family? Like, why do you need this enormous place? And he's just like, shut up. <laughs> I'm buying it. Because <laughs> this is his sort of fantasy of his life. And the Wahlberg character, who is the assistant to the main undercover guy, is also from a sort of lower class background and keeps pestering the DiCaprio character because he clearly has some sort of issue with him because he's from a more bougie family and there's all of this sort of mess going on with all of these characters and the three of them form this sort of triangle in the movie obviously the main duo are DiCaprio and Damon but then Wahlberg is definitely sort of in there with them he's about the same age and he has much much less screen time but he is emotionally really important for what's going on with the film and like morally very important and all of that I just thought was so intelligent and 
in terms of the just Irish American stuff, so the movie begins with archival footage of the bus riots in Boston in the 70s, which if people aren't familiar, this was when uh, the state was attempting to integrate schools with the African-American communities and Irish-American communities in Boston and elsewhere in the state as well. And uh, this did not go well. There were like, I mean, it was just a horrible situation. There were riots and violence. And um, there's a great book called Common Ground about all of this, which I have mentioned on the Patreon before, actually. Uh, it's the best nonfiction book I've ever read. I highly recommend it. So that starts the movie, and then that's never mentioned for the rest of the film. Race is mentioned sort of tangentially in the movie, like characters will make comments about it, but it's definitely not a big theme. But I thought it was so telling that that's how the movie starts because it sets up the sort of groundwork for what you're seeing in the sense that obviously the Irish Americans have had a huge amount of power in Boston for a very long time. And the way it's being manifested in this movie is through these two rotten systems being the mob and the police. So they have all this power, but it's just sort of desiccated from the inside out, right? Like, Jack Nicholson is old. He has had control over this mob for a long time, and he's kind of starting to lose it and get paranoid because of he knows he has an informant. And then the cops are bad because... <laughs> cops are bad and this whole system there is also just like incredibly dysfunctional so part of what's so fun to watch about the movie for me is to be like oh yeah it's set in boston and like i love boston and this is so pleasurable but you're watching it and are also like but this sucks because these people are not good so like mm. and the movie balancing that is another th way that i think it's really smart and and it's also like a film about how the, the police and the mob are just a completely self-contained ecosystem yes, absolutely because it's like, obviously there are many cop movies that are like, the cops are bad. But this is just like, these guys are absolutely just another gang. It is really the whole premise of the movie. And then you've got these two boys like being chewed up by their loyalty to these two gangs. They're completely controlled by the sort of, to a lesser or greater extent, predatory behavior of these older men who have found like these young men who are looking for father figures and want to feel like they're part of something and they're doing something and it's like obviously Matt is more sort of self-serving because he's like the quote-unquote bad one and he's like I want money and power and then Leo like wants to have this mission and then is like trapped and is emotionally falling apart um I know Morgan was like is this Leo's best role but I just saw Catch Me If You Can yesterday which I'd never seen before and God, God, he's good. I mean, he's not done a film that I have any interest in watching in like 10 years. He's certainly not done a fun film. We both love Inception, but he is the most boring part of that film and it's not like a fun film. Will he please go back to doing roles that aren't just torment? Well, he's <laughs> unbelievably funny and great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's just that that movie is infuriating. Yeah, I'm not watching that. <laughs> It's like, in order, he can only work with the big prestige white man directors, right? Perhaps the ultimate example of this phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. Who isn't like an out and out, openly blatant misogynist. Right. I mean, you know, we all know what's going on in Leo's personal life, but like, <laughs> he's not actually a full on like murderer. Uh, but uh, yeah, it would be nice to see him do something fun, but I do not think he's going to do that. But it was very refreshing to see Catch Me If You Can yesterday and discover the lost Leo of the past. Yeah, I really need to watch that again. I'd been thinking for a while that I should rewatch that. And then you happened to say that you were watching it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's I feel like people often list these two as being his his best roles. Romeo well, and Juliet these... also great, obviously. Yeah, well, it's like they're also like the different periods. Obviously, Romeo and Juliet is like peak teen role and then catch me if you can was like the sort of cusp of him being teen and then adult and then this was like the last film he did before he just obviously became like this huge prestige star but all of those movies he did for the next 10 to 15 years were just like Ugh. yeah just him like climbing a mountain for i will hours say forever. <laughs> that he is hilarious in the wolf of wall street i mean he's he is he's very funny he's like really funny I didn't mean to rewatch Wolf of Wall Street again also because I I thought it was great at the time and then really soured on it and have given the Scorsese kick that everyone's been on recently. I've sort of thought like, I should probably watch that again and see what I think. There's a scene where he and Jonah Hill do quaaludes uh, 
which is one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my entire life. But yeah, his quest to do like biopics and nothing else. I mean, Wolf of Wall Street is a biopic, but a very different kind of biopic than most of what he does. I really don't understand. I mean, clearly it's coming from some insecure place, I whatever. But I mean, now he's got his Oscar. I was just looking at what he's got coming up next. And you could probably just guess what these films are. Isn't there he's one doing... about Teddy Roosevelt? Yes, he's doing a Roosevelt bi- biopic as Roosevelt. He's doing Killers of the Flower Moon with Scorsese, uh, with, like an FBI movie. He's doing a cop movie based on a true story. And he is doing a biopic of famed serial killer H.H. Holmes. Great. So Killers of the Flower Moon, I will say, is another nonfiction book I highly recommend to people. Is one of the best books I've read in a really long time. So hopefully that movie will be good. I mean, if that's good, if that's good, I will watch that. H.H. Yeah. H. Holmes is somewhat interesting to me. But God, again, not God a lot knows. of levity in that list. Um, no, no, not a lot of laughs here. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, his whole career has basically revolved around performances where he is losing touch with reality in some way. Like he plays people who are going crazy. That's his, his shtick. Whether it's in a funny way or a not funny way, like that's what he does. And I always think it's interesting when you have actors who really have a thing that they do over and over again. Obviously writers do that, but with actors, usually they don't have as much control over what they're doing because that's just not how the business works. If you're someone like Leonardo DiCaprio, you have complete control over what you're doing because you're Leonardo DiCaprio. So, And sometimes that can be really boring because it gets histrionic or the movie is really dour or whatever. Like The Revenant is just such a fucking boring movie. But he finds such a wide variety of ways to do this one thing. Right. If you're going to pick a theme, that's a really great theme for an actor, right? But it has recently not been engaging. With this movie, I think it works really, really well. A, because he's just doing a really good job. It's a great performance. But B, the movie... So the movie is shot in a very, very kinetic way. And the editing is incredible by uh, Thelma Schoenmacher, his Scorsese's uh, longtime editor. Uh, it's just cut really quickly. So he just jump from thing to thing to thing, which is part of why it feels like it's not nearly as long as it is. It's a long movie and it doesn't feel like that because you're I just... I mean, halfway through this movie, I committed the cardinal sin of picking up my cell phone and messaging Morgan, which obviously is a crime during this type of film. <laughs> but I messaged her to be like, what's up with like the MTV camera work in this? Because there was just a scene where like Mark Wahlberg was giving one of his amazingly curse-ridden speeches and the camera was just like full on there was like a boom swinging around his head and it was like this is some wild shit it was great it's a very very like visually interesting in a way that's like fully to do with camera work rather than like oh we've done some like weird lighting here kind of situation yes and it particularly stuck out to me thinking about it in retrospect because i had watched infernal affairs last night which is not shot like that at all Uh, And the tone of that movie is just very different, which again, we'll talk about a little bit at the end. But the whole point of the way The Departed is shot and, you know, the music and everything is to convey that this is about a person who's having a just nervous breakdown. Like he's just completely anxious the entire time. Like he needs meds. He's just losing it. And the movie is shot like that. Like it's, it's fun for us to watch, but it's shot to make you feel like energized the whole time because this guy just can't take it. And the performance really sort of syncs up with the movie in an elegant way. Whereas I think sometimes his performances kind of don't match with the films in a way. And sometimes you can be a bit alienated from him because he's kind of going nuts. And as the audience, you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Whereas with this, you're completely with him the whole time. And he is very sympathetic because you get where he's coming from and you he's understand just a little boy right like he's a little boy <laughs> you're like okay so you've signed up for this horrible mission and you watch him attempt to sort of maintain cover the whole time and of course you're going to go nuts like what a fucking nightmare and so it's both a performance that's quite heightened like it's a melodramatic movie but it also feels very human in a way that a lot of his other stuff doesn't, which I think is why it's one of the best things he's done. Yeah, I just think he's really, really fantastic in this and completely sympathetic in a way that has been 
I don't feel that way watching him in recent things. Sometimes that's because the movie doesn't want you to, but a lot of the time it's just because I'm like, ugh. As we have made very clear, we both think he's a really incredible actor. But like the problem with a lot of his more recent roles is also you just watch him and you're like, there he is. Yes. <laughs> we know you're rich. <laughs> you know? Right. You can't <laughs> stop thinking about the fact that it's Leonardo DiCaprio. And this, obviously, you still know that, but it's engrossing yeah. enough that you're not Which thinking. is not the case in, like, when we were watching Brad Pitt in Ad Astra, which we did a podcast about last year, where it's like, obviously, you can't forget that he's Brad Pitt, but you're also, like, fully engaged, yes. you know, in that role. But here, it's like, he is he is a boy, very vulnerable. The violence is extremely visceral. Um, actually, I was, like, looking up the cinematographer earlier, um, Michael Ballhouse, who is, like, this He's now dead, but he was like this very long established, um, successful, critically acclaimed uh, cinematographer who did many dramas, mostly kind of drama dramas, uh, but he also did Bram Stoker's Dracula and several Scorsese movies. And I was kind of intrigued because like he said in this interview, like, I don't like to shoot violence. Scorsese is like the only filmmaker I will work with who does this sort of like hyper violence. I find it unpleasant. And I've never really considered before... Because obviously it's like so many films are really violent, but it's also kind of the experience of being a cinematographer means that you're basically you're just going to have to be like up in everyone's business watching them like wail on each other for hours on end. So if you're like fucking Tarantino cinematographer, you just have to watch people getting stabbed in the face all day. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I can see why you wouldn't want to do that. But he was, you know, kind of talking about how Scorsese does it in like a really interesting and sensitive way. And it's not really grotesque. And that was very much what it was like in this film, because this is a brutal movie but it's not sort of like here's some like gouts of blood it's also about it works so well because it's about like the trauma of that violence and kind of the emotion that goes with it with leo early on his character is wearing a cast in his arm jack nicholson's character like breaks the cast off him to see if there's a microphone in there but it's mostly just an intimidation tactic and nicholson is just fucking terrifying like it's so long since i've seen a jack nicholson movie right and god he's good i mean we all know he's good but this is such a role for him specifically and his fucking face his like weird voice he is a scary motherfucker oh my god i remember kind of thinking he was too much when i saw this as a teenager and now i was like no no it's exactly the right amount i also feel like when you're younger unless you've had like some quite grim experiences early on you probably won't get that like some people are like yes. this. Whereas like once you've lived a little, you're like, oh, there are some people who just have, they just have like psychopath energy. Yeah. And he totally, I mean, it's perfect. He's perfect. I mean, Jack Nicholson, who in real life was personal friends with Hunter S. Thompson, which is really all you need to know. Yes. <laughs> uh, th- th- that is his brand. Yeah. There's a scene where he just like throws some cocaine up in the air in this movie. And you're like, yeah, that. It's the energy you're putting off here. Um, yeah, he is really perfect. And Damon, who we talked about a little bit already, is also... He's so good. Everyone in this movie is great. Every single actor is perfect. He's just a fucking scumbag. He's such a little shit. Well, he's just... He's a full yuppie. Because it's like a very like period-specific yuppie performance. Yes. And... He humanizes the character too. Like you understand why he's doing what he's doing and he's definitely conflicted at certain points and has obviously been manipulated his whole life by this horrible man. But also he sucks. Like he is really awful. Yeah. And they do that really well with like his relationship with his girlfriend because <gasps> um, this movie doesn't really have female characters as such. Really, Vera Farmiga is like the only character, plays the only female character with any particular weight in the movie who is, uh, she's a therapist and she becomes like Matt Damon's girlfriend, but also she is the therapist of Leonardo DiCaprio's character and they kind of have a friendship and sort of have an emotional affair as the film progresses. So she's sort of a key figure who crosses over between them without any of them knowing that's kind of a love triangle. And obviously it's like the whole sort of like attractive young therapist having affairs with people. It's like, no, it's it's kind of like how when movies always have like a journalist sleep with people. But I feel like it wasn't too bad in that regard in this movie, but also the way that her character works in this film, it's like you can completely understand why she's into Matt Damon at first because he's just like, he's such a smooth flirt, but not in a way that makes you feel like he's a real player. And it is a monogamous relationship, but the more that relationship kind of drags on, 
the more it's just like, oh, this is just completely meaningless to him. Even though he is, he does want to keep her and he wants this to be a long-term relationship and he's like staying with her and living with her. You're like, you're not telling her anything. You have no respect for her. She is a possession, even though you do love her. And that's kind of an interesting balance because a lot of the time when you see that kind of story play out, it's either like, oh, this person is like, tragically understands they're betraying their women, but like they have to, or they fully are just like a monster who sees her as an object. And here it's like, you have this situation where it's basically both whereas leo actually kind of respects her well there's a great moment where she moves in with matt damon and he's like well we're not putting any of your pictures up out in the like living (laughs) room because like you know we're not like when she's a child right we're not doing that and she's sort of like okay (laughs) and then Leo winds up at her apartment, which she hasn't totally moved out of yet. And there's a picture of her as a kid on the wall. And he's like really taken with this picture of her as a child because he, it like shows what she was like. And I was like, oh, I love this because it obviously is clearly illustrating the differences between them, but in a way that I thought was well done. Yeah. And it's also kind of the reason why they're both good at their respective roles. Cause it's not just a movie about two people who are good at being un- undercover in general. It's like, two people who are good at being undercover in those specific locations because Leonardo DiCaprio's character is really emotionally intelligent, which is also why he's completely fucked up because he's absorbing all of this like horrible energy and he can kind of really tell stuff about people. Whereas what Matt Damon is doing is sort of doing the cop version of climbing the corporate ladder, which involves not revealing that much about yourself. When he's like getting serious with his girlfriend, one of his coworkers is like, oh yeah, this is good because it shows that you're steady, it's good for your career, it means your co-workers won't think you're gay, that kind of thing. Yes. And it's like their personalities are perfectly suited to those types of undercover mission. Yeah. Yeah, when I was, when I first saw this when I was younger, I absolutely viscerally hated the Vera Farmiga stuff because I thought it was so sexist, which it is. But it didn't bother me as much this time. Like, it's still stupid and I think the least successful part of the movie, but she is very good in it. I mean, she's a great actress. She's good in everything. I mean, it might partly be because you've now seen more sexist films. Exactly. Correct. <laughs> Our standards have been lowered. Yep. <laughs> but I think the scenes of her with each of the guys are pretty good, actually. It's like yeah. just the fact that it's the same character with both of them is so absurd that it's sort of like, sure. <laughs> and also having watched Infernal Affairs last night, which maybe we could move into that now. <laughs> the women in that movie are like, what the fuck? So I, I literally just watched Infernal Affairs like two hours ago and I was watching with my flatmates and one of them was just like all the women in this look like they're still in high school and it's because like they're all canto pop stars so it's like they, they've hired like Britney Spears but then like the two leads are in their 30s or 40s and are like these huge mega stars because like in Infernal Affairs they actually have like a woman who is a therapist and then they also have like a girlfriend to the cop character. So it's like they've got two different women and The Departed like combines them to create a kind of love triangle situation. And also Infernal Affairs includes this completely pointless cameo, which is, I now understand thanks to Wikipedia, was basically a celebrity cameo from this other like phenomenally attractive woman who looks about 21. And it's like, she's meant to have like a six-year-old kid. And I'm like, she does not, she's, this woman is like in high school. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know. But also like, at first I was like oh they're not the same woman like that seems better but they each get about two scenes each so it just doesn't it doesn't work I mean it's definitely a different kind of film because the entire concept of Infernal Affairs is brilliant and like The Departed basically in some ways it's it like borrows a lot of like detail elements and it also borrows the whole structure and individual scenes so like you cannot have The Departed without Infernal Affairs but Infernal Affairs is a much more sort of, I mean, basically it's like a more shallow kind of movie. It's much more of a straightforward crime thriller and they don't really go into detail in terms of characterization. Kind of like what Morgan was saying earlier about how much cultural stuff you've got going on with The Departed. Infernal Affairs is like, obviously it does have a culturally specific location, but you could definitely kind of transfer it to like other major cities without making really major changes. So it's like, the difference between making a film that's like literally all about Catholic guilt and making a film where it's like, this is just cops and it happens to be in Hong Kong. They do kind of discuss Buddhism at the beginning and end, but it's less embedded, I think, in the film. Yes. 
but yeah i mean generally it's just sort of a different kind of movie because you're not going to infernal affairs for like a really intensive character study yes it was really interesting to me to watch it's totally a fine movie like i don't want to shit all over it or anything it's it's attempting to do a very different thing and it is fine uh the departed is clearly better which was interesting to think about because there's such a negative reaction generally from cinephiles to remakes, which I obviously understand like the idea of remaking an Asian movie with like white Americans and then having it win Oscars is, you know, pretty much across the board. I would be like, that's a terrible idea, but you know, that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of different types of ways to remake a movie and changing it to make it something that you personally know about is like the way to go. Right. And like I interned at Focus Features like 10 years ago now, which is horrifying to think about, but I was interning in the like development uh, department. And so was reading all the screenplays that came through, but also was reading like short stories in the New Yorker and articles and books. And that was a tiny indie studio. So it would never have made a movie like this, but their whole approach to development which was really interesting to me at the time, and I think has become like even more extreme amongst production companies and studios now, is so much like find any material that exists that would be good to make a movie out of. Is there a good hook? Is there something? Like find it and bring it to me, right? And watching this, I was so like, oh, I completely understand why they would have picked this because the setup is so appealing with like the dual moles, right? Like it's just an obviously- It's it's a perfect concept. Right. (laughs) And you could transfer it anywhere as you were just saying, like that could be, that idea could take place anywhere. But the movie itself is very psychologically thin. Like the characters don't have very much going on. Like the first 45 minutes of The Departed basically take place within the first five minutes of Infernal Affairs. Like they, they just basically tell you like, here are these guys, the- guy who's undercover in the gang who's played by Tony Lung has been doing it for 10 years which is very different from The Departed. Yeah I mean The Departed is a full hour longer. Yes so they're going deep into the characters in a different way and so from an adaptation standpoint it's kind of perfect because there's so much you can build on but the foundation is interesting and I feel like this obviously still happens with movies the movie Downhill with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell that just came out and did not do very well uh, even before all the movie theaters closed, it wasn't doing very well, I don't think, was an adaptation or remake of Force Majeure, which was a, a film that came out in 2014. Yeah, I really want to see that. And when I heard they were doing an English language remake, I was just like, okay, I've not seen the original, but I already don't want to see the English language remake. Right. <laughs> and obviously it's a little bit of a different situation because that is a, like a perfect art film. So, like, why remake it? There's no point. Force majeure. Yeah, if awesome. a film is, like, really, really good, why remake right. it? Like, the whole concept of the Parasite TV series, which we have discussed, yes. which is, like, mm, who knows? But I do think we're also in a bit of a different cultural place now, right? Where, like, streaming has made everything available to everybody, which obviously doesn't mean that everyone in America is watching movies in other languages, but it just is a different kind of situation. Whereas when Infernal Affairs was made in 2002, like, of course, somebody was said, oh, we should remake this. And then this whole thing wound up happening. One of the biggest changes is the ending, which we'll talk about now. So spoilers, if you haven't seen the movie. Everyone dies in the department. (laughs) Like, everybody dies. Yeah. Phil and Shakespeare. Yes. And... The very end of the movie, it seems like Matt Damon's going to have gotten away with the whole thing because he winds up killing Nicholson. And then he's going back to his beautiful apartment and Wahlberg comes in and kills him right at the end and leaves. And in the original, that character, the Damon equivalent, does get away with it. Yeah, and also there's no like Wahlberg figure because no. there's the whole point is there's only one person who knows that the undercover cop is a cop. Yeah, and um, they have a some sort of quote about Buddhism at the, at the end about how in continuous hell the reference is that you just have to sort of go on and on living in this state of misery. But like the film doesn't really illustrate no. how much misery he's in because like first of all that film really doesn't lean into the trauma of both of those characters like experiences right because you're like yes Tony Lung's character 
is having a hard time and wants to get out. But you don't really see him suffering so much as just being like, well, he's a really great actor and has a mournful face. And then like Andy Lau's character is like, first of all, it's like you basically have like this massive, huge superstar playing that role. So you're like already very glamorous, but he's kind of snaky all the way through. Like you don't really feel sympathetic towards him as such at all. Like he's not really got that element of vulnerability because he's in his 30s and he's like more into the yuppie-ish kind of zone already. And it just kind of seems like he wants to just have that power. You don't get the sense of the mob boss leveraging him so much so he doesn't seem like it's as urgent. And then once it reaches the end, it's like, well, you say that he's in hell, but is he actually in hell? Because it kind of just seems like he's getting to keep his job. Yes, it's really (laughs) not uh, illustrated very well. I mean, one of the other big changes that they make in The Departed is that the mob boss in Infernal Affairs is just kind of in the background. Like, he's not a very huge character in that movie at all. Whereas Nicholson in The Departed is terrifying, as we said, and has a huge amount of screen time and is just, like, haunting the city, which is part of the Whitey Bulger thing, right? Where, I mean, he was this huge, huge presence for so many years. But they also add the Wahlberg character who winds up killing Damon at the end because this is a very Catholic movie and he is the sinner and so he has to wind up dead because it's just not going to work for that character to make it out alive. It would be so dissatisfying if that happened. Like, it just, it's not acceptable. And I think the Wahlberg character, the, the addition of that character is a real masterstroke also because there needs to be someone who actually has ethics (laughs) I mean he kills someone at the end of the movie so it's not like he's this paragon of moral duty or whatever but he is someone who seems to kind of get what's going on and he's infuriated when it seems like there's corruption going on in the police force and he gets that Damon is not good from much earlier in the movie this was the first thing I saw Mark Wahlberg in and I didn't know anything about his background and subsequently learned. So I don't have to go through watching this with the like weight of that because my association is still from what I saw when I was 16. It's fascinating to me that he comes across here as someone who is super smart because that is not what I associate with him and also someone who has this moral compass. So acting is just magical. Like we, you know, who the fuck knows? But Having him as, again, the sort of third point in the triangle with these other two characters who's kind of watching from the background and then finishes the movie is really satisfying, I think. They wanted to make a sequel about him trying to clean up the police department. and Terrible idea. Monaghan wrote the screenplay and Scorsese wanted to do it. And the studio thought that Mark Wahlberg could not open a movie. And so they refused, (laughs) which is... Amazing in retrospect. Uh, that story is from the Blank Check podcast. Whereas now he's all in these fucking Transformers I movies. Know. So, it's you know. Bananas. So he was nominated for an Oscar. I do think we should talk about the Oscars a little bit since that was a huge part of the story of this movie. It was nominated for Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Editing, and Supporting Actor. It won all of them except Supporting Actor. It is sort of a, a quaint thing that he was nominated for Supporting Actor for like a 15-minute performance because... That does not happen anymore. Leonardo DiCaprio was nominated for leading actor for the film Blood Diamond, which uh, doesn't exist. I was about to say that film, like, I remember that film happening because I remember seeing trailers. I assume that must have been trailed in front of every movie that year because God knows I would not have had any interest in it aged like 15 or whatever. My DVD of The Departed from many years ago has a, one of the trailers in front of the movie is for Blood Diamond. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I never saw it. I believe it was some sort of racist film about uh, diamonds in South Africa. Jaiman Hansu, also in that movie. Leonardo DiCaprio has a very bad accent. One of the weirdest things in my Oscar watching history. How did that happen? I do not understand. <laughs> and... The other Best Picture nominees that year were The Departed, Babel, Letters from Iwo Jima, Little Miss Sunshine, and The Queen. Not an impressive year, I would say. Little Miss Sunshine is great. I just had to Google Babel. Yes. I was unaware of this film. Oh, I I saw it in the theaters. I have vivid recollections. Some of it's good. Some of it is very bad. This was the year that I got really into the Oscars, and uh, a friend of mine and I saw as many of the movies nominated as possible. Oh my god, Children of Men year. Yes. 
Okay. So Children of Men is clearly the best movie of this year or many years. Yeah. As we have discussed in our Children of Men podcast, which if you have the backbone and the stomach currently to listen to a podcast about Children of Men, perhaps my favourite film of all time, we do have one. It's a masterpiece. You will feel bad. (laughs) You'll feel bad. Yes, indeed. Um... So that's clearly, again, clearly the best movie of the year. It didn't really hit with Oscar. They released it right at the end of December, which was a huge mistake. It just didn't have time. It got nominated for um, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, and Editing, and won nothing. But apart from that, I kind of feel like The Departed is the best movie of the sort of mainstream stuff of this year. I'm sure there's other stuff that came out that I didn't see and still haven't, but... um, Again, back to the sort of like, it's so weird, Scorsese won for that movie. It's like, well, seems like a good choice to me. (laughs) The alternative was The Queen? Like, I mean, that was clearly never going to win the Oscar. But um, yeah, sometimes this all just works out. It was certainly the best 2006 movie that really blatantly featured the Dropkick Murphys in the soundtrack. So, (laughs) which was not like a... I was. I mean, if anyone had been like, oh, what kind of music do you think Scorsese likes? I was not expecting it to be this. But I mean, obviously he does have the Rolling Stones in like 10 of his films. So, yes, you know, good soundtrack. Yeah, really, really good soundtrack. The soundtrack for Infernal Affairs, or rather like the score, was wild. Because they had about 15 different genres of music in just the incidental score. It was, I mean, it wasn't like bad, but it was like, you have definitely you are allowing yourself to let loose yes. with all of your instruments, electronic items, and subgenres. There are multiple scenes in that movie where a character dies and a melancholy pop song plays over a black and white montage of clips from earlier in the movie. And I was like, I love the lack of restraint here. <laughs> like, Just going for it. I also really enjoyed the terrible haircuts in that movie. It was very, very much of a specific 2002 era. I mean, both of these films had some very, because like uh-huh. the mid-2000s had some real haircuts. Like definitely Infernal Affairs was leaning more into the haircuts because like the women's haircuts in this especially, oof, oof, very 2002. But in The Departed, like I think I texted you after watching, is like Leo and Matt both have, it's not like ostentatious haircuts. They're very generic haircuts, but they are very mid-2000s in a kind of rather undefinable way. <laughs> Leo in particular has just like a little bit of a duck ducktail at the front of his head, which r- reminded me very much of many boys that I knew in high school. Yeah, very boyish. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love this movie. If you want to watch a movie where a lot of people die, which maybe you don't right now, uh, I highly recommend it. But if they die, but it's not in a I mean, you know, it's I mean it didn't way. this film didn't make me feel bad. It's a tragedy, but it didn't make me feel yeah, bad. Exactly. There's a difference, you know? I think I think a good piece of escapism for the current moment if you want something a little more a little more serious. Yeah, I love Marty. Great guy. <laughs> and uh Leo should do better films. That's my other main takeaway from this. Please. He's not gonna. I know. And the thing is, it's one of those situations where it's like we would like him to do other good films, but also I don't really care. Like it's like I'm not invested in Leo's spiritual growth and if he continues to make films i don't care about and i don't want to watch i'm going to continue not caring and not watching i don't care about his spiritual growth at all he can do whatever the fuck he wants with his time i could not care less but as a viewer you know i always just want the movies to be better so if he and christian bale or whatever could just get their shit together i would appreciate that that would be good um yeah so on that note Next week, we will be discussing the classic Alfred Hitchcock film, Rear Window, uh, where James Stewart sits in his apartment for two hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We've been kind of discussing various movies to do over the coming weeks. The Purge is also another really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, two listeners who may have doubts about The Purge, because obviously the concept of The Purge and the title of The Purge are perhaps not particularly whelming. The Purge is fucking great. The Purge sequels, also really great. There's one, I've not seen all of the Purge sequels. Um, the third one, I think, is like slightly a dud, but it's not actively bad. And then the fourth one, I've not seen yet, but apparently it's really good again. So honestly, the Purge franchise, 
Good work. So we're going to have an interesting variety. I think there were a couple of others we've been discussing. And we also have at least one Patreon request coming up. And people are, of course, as always, welcome to ask us on Patreon to watch movies for them or, you know, a small selection of TV episodes. Yes. So if someone wants to, like, pay us to, for example, make Morgan watch the Battlestar Galactica miniseries, that would be great. (laughs) I was just thinking about this the other day because I was like... That miniseries was perfect and Morgan has not seen it. And actually, Morgan would like it because it's good. (laughs) Yeah, that's always a goal. Uh, But Rear Window next week, I just rewatched it. I had not seen it since the fall of 2008. And uh, it's quite something. Not one of my top, top Hitchcocks, but it's super fun and really spoke to me in our present moment. So uh, I, especially if you are not, uh, is familiar with that period of films or the Hitchcock, it's a good entry point. There's a reason they have you watch it in like intro film studies. There's a lot of like film theory stuff, but in an accessible way. Oh, interesting. Because I've seen like a bunch of other Hitchcocks, yeah. but not this one. Yeah, so. it's, it's it's both really fun and very interesting. So I think it'll be good one to talk about. And Grace Kelly in her probably best role. She's so great in that movie. So Before she went off to go and become Grace Kelly, which is, even though this happened before I was born, it's still wild to me. She only made nine <laughs> movies, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so that'll be next week. Thank you so much, as ever, for listening. I am doing some blogging in our down, all of our downtime on our Patreon, so if you want me to write about something, you can tweet me, post a comment on Patreon. We will have a mini-soda of some kind up in the next couple weeks as well. We hope that you are all doing as well as possible in this uh, horrible time and that you are staying inside as much as possible and that you have lots of food. Yeah, it's it's been weird, but we will be carrying on with the podcast from here on out insofar as we are able and look forward to recording new episodes. So, uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, as ever, I'm writing for The Daily Dot, although I'm now doing more pandemic coverage than film reviews for the foreseeable future. You can find me on Twitter, however, at hello underscore Taylor, where I am about to embark on an amazing social media enterprise Star Trek fanfic where I rewrite Star Trek's original series as a reality TV show. So that's a really good incentive for you all to follow me on Twitter. Amazing. Uh, and I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>